Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. The world of covert policing and managing human sources is one which is fraught with risk. Risk of being identified. Risk of having a source blow their cover. All these can place both the officer and the human source in harm's way. Matt Trott spent over 20 years in British policing, working all over the country in units responsible for the management of human sources and even carrying out covert operations to gather evidence against some of the UK's most dangerous gangs. In this episode of Protect and Serve, we discuss Matt's transition from the army as an infantry soldier to the front line of West Midlands streets as an operational police officer and later a detective sergeant. Matt's story is a harrowing one, one which is filled with excitement, fear and adrenaline-dumping moments which leave you on the edge of your seat. All this and more on Protect and Serve. Okay, well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And I'm incredibly honoured to have spoken to so many different people throughout Series 1 of this podcast. And today's guest is no different in terms of his exposure to frontline policing, both in the investigative world and operationally in public order. And we're going to talk about all those topics and much more on this episode of Protect and Serve. But without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Matt Trott to the podcast. Matt, welcome. Hi there. 
Thank you for having me today. No, it's an it's an absolute pleasure. And you know, Matt, the the, the first thing I always ask um, former colleagues when they come on the podcast is, your career started over twenty five years ago, back in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, you're a, a former gentleman who was in the military. Why the move into policing? It's a, sort of a, a family trade, really. The, my dad was a, a police officer. I grew up with him, um, always being a police officer. You know, he'd come home on Christmas Day when he'd been working, nip home for his Christmas dinner in his uniform, and I'd hear the radio going in the background with all the events <laughs> that are going on. Um, so it's sort of a, it was always that adventure listening to my dad and uh, his stories and his radio when he was there. Um, and of course, you have that that pride when you see a parent turning up in uniform and things. I, I suppose it imprinted on me. It was just there. It was always normal and natural. Um, I came to the end of my military career, and it was something I wanted to do. It just made sense. It was a good, solid career. It had progression. It had a good wage. It had a pension. It just kind of made sense. I was in my mid twenties by that time, and it was that time when you have to grow up and move forward in your life. Um, so that's where I wanted to go. It, it just made sense for me. I wanted the excitement and the adventure that it brought me as well, as well as the variety of work um, that you can do. Um, I could never see myself being that nine to five person or somebody um, uh, I used to joke with my mum because she said, why don't you get your forklift driving license? And no, no, uh, no disrespect to anybody who drives a forklift or anything like that, but I could never see myself working in a factory. Um, you wanted more. I wanted more. I wanted to be out there, and you know, I suppose it's a bit of a, uh, a hero syndrome, isn't it? You get um, when you're younger, and you want to be out there and saving the world. One of the important points is is that often when people tell family and friends that they're um, joining the police, is that kind of anticipation as to how that will be accepted. I suppose one of the great advantages you had with a dad who was who'd been in the job was in the job that that transition was and that acceptance of policing as a vocation amongst your family was accepted what about friends was there any sort of sort of concern or questions around this decision to move into a vocation which ultimately could see maybe them wondering whether the friendship was still stable what would you think of them in terms of seat belts and speeding other issues that can pop up from time to time well I was quite lucky really um, I'd moved away into the military at the age of 17 I'd lost contact with most people that I knew um, where I lived um, so my friendship groups within the military, uh, they all understood, they all had similar sort of outlooks to life and wanted that kind of life for themselves as well. Um, so they weren't a problem at all. Um, I suppose any problems probably came from new relationships at the same time. You know, you always get idiots who say, oh, give me a speeding ticket. Um, I can't mm. park here, you're a copper, aren't you? You know, you get that sort of um, childish banter but I, I never really came up against it um, to the point of losing a friend or anything like that um, and if I had I would have lost no sleep over it because realistically they're not a real friend are they? I totally agree and it's, it's such a valid point in terms of those people that um, I suppose lure themselves to that level those are the people that really aren't worth knowing but you know training in the late 90s and early 2000s you went to Wrighton to complete your 15 weeks of training. Question I often ask just about all of my guests that come on the podcast is that the vocation of policing is one which is incredibly complex there's an awful lot of legislation policy and procedure to 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 be able to recall almost verbatim sometimes how did you handle the academic side of training oh that was a struggle 
<laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I've never been the most academic of people. Why do you think I ended up in the infantry? I, I have to admit, I really um, I'm more of a visual learner. So yeah. I had to um, write down every single definition, you know, like the definition of theft. I had to write it down and continually write it down and write it down into, you know, into blocks until I remembered each individual element. And then I'd sometimes have to remember it in pictures as well in my mind. Uh, I'm not an academic, um, far from it. And anybody who knows me who's listened to this will, um, they, they'll agree. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I can, uh, I can learn stuff. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. And I know to lock people up. Uh, but if you start asking me acted section, I'll say, I don't know, mate. I know that, that it's an offence and I can lock you up for it. Um, but, but yeah, verbatim stuff. I can do verbatim and, you know, I got qualified all the way through to inspector in the end. Um, so I can do it, it, but it's a hard slog for me. And one of the interesting points is, is you had this previous military training experience. Was there was military training different from police training? Uh, very much so. Uh, it's it, the military training is more about breaking you down and then rebuilding you back up in the image yeah. of a soldier. Um, and it's a lot more physical. Uh, you're using weapons and tactics. Uh, and you know you've gone out and play an army in the woods as well, which is uh, not something you do at Wrighton. However, I mean Wrighton was uh, it's it looked like an ex-military camp when I got there. I'm pretty much sure it was at one point, and I had that feeling when I went there that oh, this is going to be like being back in the army. So I took my boot polish, I took you know everything ready to um, expect to have hell unleashed onto, onto me by the drill sergeant. Um, but when we got there, it was more like a yeah, college campus and uh, it was a very relaxed environment. They'd got rid of things like drill at the time. Um, so I had to teach people drill for the passing out parade at the end of training because there was no instructors there that could teach it. Um, <laughs> and uh, the learning environment was, yeah, get up, have your breakfast, classroom. Work. It was The 15 weeks at Wrighton, I would say, was 95% classroom learning, front-loading off of instructors, um, tests, and then you'd have the, the lower proportion of practical application. So around the campus site, you'd have an RTC um, set up, a road traffic collision, sorry, and you'd have to be the officer who's walking along with his big police helmet on, um, <laughs> on foot, on, you are you are on foot patrol, and you have come across a, a road traffic collision at these junctions. How will you deal with it? And, and you wow. set to motion, you know that kind of thing. And then you'd make an arrest, and you'd walk them up the road to the nearest custody <laughs> building and book them in with the the, the uh, instructor who's role playing the uh, custody sergeant. You know, so you do role plays around that. We did uh, a small amount of public order training, um, but. Uh, yeah, it, it was fun. It was fun. It had a good social scene as well in the evenings. Um, and, and it was a fun time for me. So, you know, you're in West Midlands Police. You graduate to East Wolverhampton Operational Command. You're out onto what I suppose is commonly referred to as just general duties, operational policing, going from job to job. When After graduating, obviously you'd had this experience to conflict and confrontation to some extent in the military but now obviously you're taking that out onto the into civvy street away from the military but into into policing 
What was that transition like? Were there any particular early points in your career where you recognised that policing was going to offer you equally, you know, significant challenges on the road dealing with day-to-day 999 calls? Yeah, I was quite lucky when I landed at East Wolverhampton. I was, uh, um, I was paired up with a tutor, a guy by the name of Rush Yeomans, a, a wonderful guy. I'm still in touch with him now, a very close friend. He was a proper old-school cop, had attitudes, beliefs and behaviours from a time gone, let's say. And um, he was very hmm. robust in the way he policed. Um, he'd just come from tactical support group, TS, TSG, as we used to call them in the West Mids. Um, yeah. And they're, they're like the riot cops, for those who, who don't know. Um, day one, after he sent me around the station to collect up all the paperwork that I needed, um, we got in a car and he took me across to uh, Lloyd House, where he was going to be interviewed by professional standards. Um, and he invited me in as his uh, friend to see what the procedures were um, when you had been investigated. Um, by professional standards so I sat in on his interview and everything like that and it, it to me it kind of opened up that actually yeah we're here to save the world but we've got to do it properly yeah. and um, uh, if we do do something let's document it let's write it up correctly and this is what's going to happen to me you know I can be interviewed so I need to know how to answer their questions what to say what not to say you know, don't answer a question that you haven't been asked, if you like. Um, wait for them to ask you and then uh, present what you need to present. You know, do I need legal advice? That kind of thing really was quite interesting. That was just day one. Uh, so, but yeah, then um, moving on from there, we we hit the streets and it, it was it was like a baptism of fire, let's say. East Wolverhampton, very busy, busy town and... Um, a lot of deprivation, a lot of drug use, um, a lot of unemployment. Uh, So, you know, I talk about military and you go on a six-month tour to Northern Ireland, for example. You do your six months, you come back, you have a few weeks off, and then you spend the next couple of years doing nothing but training on soldiers playing. Um, You go in the police, you go on the front line every day. Every day is an operations tour. You come into work. And mm. even before you're at work, you've got those pressures that we spoke about earlier about public perceptions of police officers off duty. Anything happens to you when you're off duty or in front of you, you have to deal with it. But driving in on the motorway into Wolverhampton, um, it, say, for example, on a Sunday afternoon, hot Sunday afternoon in the middle of the summer, you know that it's going to be hell on earth because they're all out in their front gardens and their sofas drinking tenant super beer. <laughs> and smoking joints and you're just waiting for it to kick off and you just know it's going to happen. Um, So you have that kind of um, anticipation even before you get to work. And then when you get to work, you're disappearing up your tailpipe going from job to job to job. And, you know, you you are dealing with um, people who are, uh, let me give you an example, you know, so um, one of the jobs we went to, there was a a guy there, um, he was drunk and stoned. And his uh, ex-partner was trying to get their daughter back. He went into the house and Russ is trying to negotiate, talking down, but he's swearing, shouting at us. He's having none of it. He's calling the, his ex-missus names. Um, Russ just steps in and says, right, it's not safe for the kid to be here. We're taking the kid. He takes hold of the child. This guy launches at him off the sofa. Oh, I, wow. step in his, I step in his way. And, uh, and to be fair, this took Russ by shock as well. I, I stepped in his way. Um, bladed my body and as he came towards I just 
just did like a judo throw and threw him across the room. He, he landed on this sofa and I racked down my back and I'm like, get back, stay down. And uh, and this book was like, all right, mate, no need to be violent. And you're like, <laughs> you're, like, you're, like you're the one who, you, you escalated this, mate. Um, so uh, Russ, Russ was laughing all the way to the bank after that. He was honestly, he, he was, I, I walked into the office afterwards and you could hear him going on about it. And from that moment onwards, we were cemented as uh, as true friends and allies. So you, you adapted really well to the rigours of frontline policing. It's something, it's almost like, a, if I can use the expression, like a duck to water. It's something that... It felt that way, yeah. It felt yeah, you, you enjoyed the operational style of policing and you got this reputation fairly quickly as a good thief taker, which is a phrase which is commonly used in UK policing. But most of our listeners who may be overseas may not know what that term means. Would you mind just explaining that for us and, and how you came about to get that phrase? Yeah, sure. Um, being a thief taker is basically proactive. It's not It's not hard to become a thief taker. All you need to be doing is knowing where the crimes are happening, knowing who's doing them or suspecting who's doing them and going out and actively targeting people. You know, I, I would know if I'm going out the station, I'm going to turn left today because I know the burglaries are down that road. Um, so I'm going to go around that area and anybody who I suspect looks at a place is doing something they shouldn't be doing, I'm stopping them. I'm going to check their vehicles. I'm going to search them if I've got grounds. And nine times out of ten, um, you, you pick up a prisoner. Um, and in a place like East Wolverhampton, it's not hard to find prisoners. Um, you, you can literally drive through the estate and somebody will be walking a, walking along with a shopping trolley with someone's heating system in it where, where they've just been in the house. <laughs> you know, that's one of the first things I saw, to, to be honest with you, was, was some lads walking along with a trolley with a big uh, um, a heat, heating element thing in a the, in the trolley, um, uh, you know, from the airing cupboard, one of those ones. Oh, um, and it's not hard. It's not hard to find them. And they are, it is low-hanging fruit, um, to be honest. But by continually targeting um, the low-hanging fruit, you work your way up the tree. You get the intelligence. You find out the next bit, you know, of somebody else, and you put it together. And then you think, right, we're going to go and target the big boy now. Get a warrant, and you you to do a, a drugs warrant or a theft warrant at someone's house. And that's how it that's how it happens. It's about being proactive, getting out there. And I feel that it, that's something that it does happen. In modern policing but i think it's they don't have the time to do it as much as we did before we had more people we had less demand um so that i think they struggle now to be able to get out there and be as proactive as we used to be well that reputation that you got of being a good thief taker led to you being appointed fairly quickly to join the ranks of the proactive teams investigating the robberies and the burglaries which you've just touched on just touched on then and and during your period of time in this section of policing there's an incident where you're working, I believe, and you have to correct me if I'm wrong here, with a DC Rose, where an incident occurred where a gun was involved and you had to take some immediate action to ultimately save the life of your colleague. Can you talk us through that one? Yeah, absolutely. Of course I can. Um, so uh, <clears throat> there'd been a series of car key burglaries over the um, Wolverhampton, South Staffordshire area at this time. And uh, there was a couple of lads who were prolific. Well, there was a gang that was prolific, but the, these two were the ones that were the, the main drivers within that gang of people. Um, they'd be, they'd, basically, they'd go into people's houses at night, steal the car keys, high-value vehicles, high-speed vehicles, and uh, 
they'd steal them off the driveways, basically. So they'd go wow. through a back window um, when the occupants were asleep and, and just take the keys, or they'd confront them. And this particular gang did this, and it was um, it was Christmas Christmas Day. They'd forced their way into this family's house at gunpoint. You know, the whole family was there. They were having Christmas dinner, forced their way in and stole the keys to their Subaru, which was on the Subaru Impreza, which was on the driveway, um, uh, stealing the vehicle and off they shot. Um, some intelligence came in who it was. So we started looking around for a minute. It just turned out one of them was, was on the run from prison as well. So automatically both of these characters dropped into my uh, most wanted list and uh, I set about hunting them down. Um, and uh, it, it was great. We were out every night, me and Rosie, we were patrolling the streets in our vehicle looking for them. Uh, unfortunately, the vehicle we got wasn't the most reliable, but we got there. A couple, a couple of days before, they'd both been cornered in a house and one of the one of them was hiding in the loft. When yeah. the police were searching, they came across him. He pulled a gun out and told them to back off. Um, they had no choice really. They didn't. They, they, they weren't armed officers, so they had, to, they had to withdraw. And as they withdrew, um, these guys saw the opportunity and scooted out the back door. Uh, a few days later, um, myself and Rosie are patrolling the streets, um, and we're in a plane car. We see two. Uh, we we hear, hear over the radio that there's been a vehicle dumped on a street and it's a stolen mm. vehicle. So we sort of made our way over to that area, and then saw two figures crossing the road. And it was like, that's them, definitely them. And uh, so we prepped ourselves up. Rosie was in the passenger seat, the jump seat, as we call it. He was there, door, door partially open, ready to go. Um, if need be, he, he would give chase. Uh, pulled into the street. Uh, Rosie jumped out. Stop, police. Stop, police. Um, one of the lads who was biting his feet, he was gone. He was like a, like a thousand speeding gazelles. He was gone. On his toes. On his toes, he was gone. There was no way we were catching him. But the other guy who had pulled the gun out before, I think he he thought he was uh, Johnny Concrete. Um, At this point, he'd sort of realised that I've got this weapon. It scares people. I'm going to use it. So he turned on his heels, drew down this weapon, um, pointed it at Rosie, um, telling him to back off. Um, You know, they were swearing at him, get down, get down on your knees. I'm in the car because my job is to bounce forward in the car to block them off if need be. Um, but what I'm witnessing in front of me is this guy holding this pistol. He's drawn down. He's, he's got it in Rosie's face. Rosie getting to his knees as he's been ordered to. And I'm like, my God, am I going to see an execution here? Um, but this all happens in a millisecond because, you know, you know, your mind works. It just happens. Yeah, really um, so quickly. I just whacked my foot on the accelerator towards him, uh, drove the car at him. Um, Stupidly, rather than dropping the weapon and running off, he uh, turned the weapon towards me, which made him an even more legitimate target at that point. And start, he started running backwards, but he was still pointing the weapon at me. Uh, so continued to accelerate. Um, I hit him. He flipped up in the air, landed on the windscreen. It felt like a big pheasant um, when it landed on him. And then I hit the curb, went through a couple of gardens, smashed into a wall wow. um, his, his body flew off of the car into another garden and just lay there motionless and I was like okay I think I might have killed this one um, <laughs> we'll get a job in uh, Toys R Us as a security guard after that um, <laughs> but I thought okay sort of numb 
I was sort of stuck in the car, all the steam was coming out the engine because the car was absolutely written off at this time. Um, I checked myself over, I had no injuries. And then I looked on the right and Rosie's running past towards the suspect. Um, we find him in the garden, he's making noise. So we knew he wasn't dead. He was making plenty of noise at this time and uh, checked him over. He was okay. And then recovered the firearm. Amazing. So, you know, those sort of moments, you know, they happen, as you as you quite rightly say, they happen so quickly and you have to make split second decisions ultimately because these are life and these are life changing decisions. Ultimately, if you don't act, what are the ramifications to the safety of your partner um, who's being threatened? And then then having to respond to try and take this action once these incidents are over. You have a chance to sit back and reflect on sometimes the what ifs. You know, what if I hadn't acted? What if I hadn't done this? How did you reflect on that incident? Because it's, you know, it's an incredibly intense confrontational moment for you. I did the only thing you could really do. I put the kettle on. (laughs) You know, my whole life I've been trained to uh, engage with targets and take out the enemy. Um, Honestly, it's replayed over in my mind a number of times over the years, but at the time, um, it, I, was, I, I know I was in shock because I was rambling. I was talking to everybody who wanted to listen to me, but I very quickly got back to normal and I didn't personally sort of suffer from it. Um, I know uh, Rosie did. He wasn't used to firearms. He wasn't used to that level of violence, if you like. Yeah. Um, but in my mind, from my background within the military, which, like I say in the book, is it's like it almost prepared me for this. Um, tours of Northern Ireland, living in um, violent countries, violent situations. I'd got so used to it that I was numb to it, I suppose, and I just, I just carried on. I just turned up for work the next day and carried on like normal. Wow, it's incredible. And, you know, you've still got all the custody sort of process. You've got this prisoner... You know, there's then an investigation by detectives and investigators to ascertain what crimes they've committed. You know, it's, it's a, it has a massive impact in terms of both locally, um, you know, in terms of the the outcome and, and, to, and to yourselves professionally in terms of, you know, having to pick yourself back up and get back into the, the jump seat and, and do it all again the following day. It's quite incredible. Which goes We're, back to what I was saying earlier about the fact that being a police officer is like being on, a, on an operational tour every day for 30 plus years and people don't understand that. Can, uh, one, I suppose, often the, the biggest question I ask is is that, you know, the the challenges that officers face today and the support that they get in terms of when they're faced with um, either confrontational scenes, confronting scenes, scenes of often unexplained death or, or, or violent scenes can sometimes affect us all very, very different. And a violent arrest is one of those ones where it can affect us in terms of our ability to think, is this the job for me? And as you as you pointed out, you dusted yourself off the following day. You spoke to whoever wanted to listen to about the story. You managed to get it off your chest per se. Is it, did you get the support that you, you, you that that was the pro- was there any support during those days in terms of to call a sort of a debrief? Um, back then, no, no, there was nothing. Um, not that I was aware of or got put forward for. Um, just got commendation and told, "Well done, um, do it again, please." You know, there was that sort of that sort of environment. It was much more of a cut and thrust. 
Um, nowadays, yes, you're more likely to get uh, what they call trim, sort of debriefing. Um, but back then, um, I don't recall having any sort of debrief. Um, they made someone drive me home and pick me up in the morning. I think that was about the elements of, as far as the welfare went. But I have to say, I don't didn't feel like I needed it. Does policing being on the front line every day make officers jaded about humanity over time? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. And it links into a lot of things that have happened in the media recently as well, I believe. I, I was a really nice person when I was in the army. <laughs> and then uh, I joined the police and slowly it breaks you down. It really breaks you down to that sort of person that what's that person looking at me for? Um, what are their, what's their motivations? Somebody talks to you in a pub, you look them up and down and straight away you have categorised them as a certain type of person or a class of person, if that makes sense. And you're already thinking, I can't say too much about myself or let them into my inner circle because I don't trust people. It does build up a massive trust thing. But that has an impact on relationships as well. Yeah. So your partner, for example, uh, is often left at home on their own for a long period of time and they make friendship groups away from you. And then when you come back and you start joining in with them friendship groups, you, you get the thing like we spoke about earlier, or best not park here, you're a copper, and that puts you on the back foot again, and you don't really want to engage with them people. So you become a very um, insulated person and only mix with other cops most of the time. But going on from that, if you look at what's going on in the media at the moment, every two minutes there's um, something on Google News or, or Facebook News about a police officer being sacked for doing X, Y, or Z, relationship with this person, stole this, hit this person. You know, it's constant. And um, the only thing I can put it down to is going back to that they're always in a combative state. That 30-year operational tour that they're doing, is continually combative for the whole time. Mm. So their mindset is more um, jaded away from normalities. They, they're seizing the moment every day because they don't know what's going to happen to them the next day. And they may make bad decisions off the back of that. Mix that with heavy workloads. You know, since I retired, my, my stress levels are zero compared to what they were before. And I didn't even realise um, the amount of pressure from paperwork, management, staffing issues, shifts, you know, the public. Mm. Um, you, you don't understand those issues until you've left and look back. I, I qualified in the, as a mental health first aider and I was looking through all the trigger points for what would be known as a toxic work environment. And every single one of them was my old office, was where I worked for, it, you know, high workloads, uh, low morale. Um, uh, violent situations it ticked every box that could make a, a work environment toxic so I do believe that modern day cops are, are you know they're, they're always in the media right any story about the police is a great story and uh, they're, they're, they are struggling because they are continually in that combative state we talk about um, often what I consider to be the unsung heroes that are behind every police officer um, it'd be husbands and wives of people that are in policing because policing isn't just a job it's a lifestyle that families live around because of shift work days afternoon and night sometimes Christmas is not at home 
you know, New Year's Eve, other significant dates and birthdays. What was the support framework that you had uh, around you? And were you often able to debrief to family about your experiences or did you guard them from the types of work that you were doing? Um, I was married at the time when I, back, back when I first joined the police, not any longer. Um, and yeah, the family were there for you, but I, I think they've got enough of their own stuff going on as well. Mm. And they're building lives themselves. And you can't come home every night telling war stories. If there's something terrible happened, yeah, they'd hear about it and um, support you the best they could. Um, didn't again because of that being away and being away and only coming back to the area when I was an adult and joining the police. I didn't have the biggest support network at home. Yeah, mm. um, I, I had immediate family support, obviously, um, but my wife at the time was bringing up children. So she had other um, concerns as well. And it, to them, it's just, well, you're going to work and coming home. They don't know the intricacies of what you've done. You could have gone to work that day, um, seen a couple of dead bodies, had a violent fight with somebody, arrested a paedophile all in one day, you know. And mm. you can't come home and uh, download that every day. So you, you do bottle it up, keep it to yourself. Um, you talk about it with your colleagues more than anything. And I think that's where you get that... Um, that camaraderie within the police. Uh, families can only do so much because they don't, they can't understand it unless they've done it. We talked about your career in the, um, or your stint in the investigative area of robberies and burglaries. And before the end of your second year, you'd applied to become uh, a test purchase officer and was successful in doing so. Now, a test purchase officer is a very unique job in terms of, you know, infiltrating drug networks across the UK, gathering evidence against drug dealers who are severely impacting communities with the impact of those illicit substances. And then the ramifications of these groups, you know, sometimes in London, we talk about these postcode battles that go on because if everybody's got their little patch, that the, 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 the issues that, that that revolves. Tell us about becoming a test purchase officer. What drew you into that line of work and the pressures associated with such a role? So uh, I hadn't even thought about it when, when I saw the advert on, on like the uh, um, orders that were on the board. You know, you used to get orders put on the board and you'd, you'd read through them and they'd advertise jobs. And I saw this this job and I was like, oh, I wonder what that's all about. And I spoke to my shift sergeant and he, he filled in the gaps about, well, basically you'll be expected to be a covert asset, you go undercover, you'll buy drugs, you'll present evidence um, from that, and uh, that evidence will be presented to court against this suspect. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm having some of that. I really fancy that. It was like a, a bit of an adrenaline junkie at the time. You know, I was, like I said, I was a thief taker. <laughs> I, was, I was out blue lights chasing people every night, having a great time. And I thought, how can I get even more adrenaline? And uh, I thought, this sounds interesting. It sounds exciting. Um, this is what I want to do. You know, I want to be that that undercover cop going out, taking out um, drug dealers. Great. Can't think of anything better. Um, so I saw that and um, applied for it, as you said, and I got through the uh, through the, the uh, training and, and the selection. And I think the key things that you needed, really, to get that job was resilience because you're dealing with um, some of the toughest people in, in your area, you know, in the world even. I suppose, um, yeah. and they'll, they'll be staring you down and, um, you know, trying to test you and push, push your buttons. 
Um, you need to be adaptable. You need to be able to think on your feet. So if something happens and the situation changes, you know, you need to be able to dodge and dive a bit and have, have the answers. I was always quick-witted and a bit of a joker. So having that quick wit kind of helped in that element. But you've got to be able to keep that under the surface. You know, you're like a swan. You're gliding across the, the pond, but underneath your feet are going like mad. You know, that, mm. that's that's the sort of thing you need. You need to be able to maintain that cover story, that legend, if you like, about who you are, why you're in that neighbourhood or in that club buying drugs. You need to have all those cover stories in place um, to be able to adapt as things change. It's interesting because you, you, you we talk about this test purchasing role and dealing with some of the most dangerous gangs in the country are there ever occasions where these individuals that you're purchasing from and gathering this this critical evidence is there ever incidents where these people question who you are and there's those tense moments where you where your cover's nearly blown oh yeah yeah definitely um uh, i mean there's, there's one incident in the book that i talk about um about uh, um a couple of yardies that I was buying drugs off in Birmingham and uh, they tried to get me to sit in the car. You don't really want to get in cars. It's not something you do. You want, you want to be buying through a car window rather than getting in. Eventually get in and uh, you can tell they're a bit stoned as well. Um, and they're asking me who I am, why am I why am I buying drugs off them? And I'm sort of my cover story as well. I ain't from around here, mate. Just working in the area. I normally buy off this other guy, but I can't, I've lost his number. Um, and I think as soon as I'd said, I'm not from around here, they both twigged and they were like, looked at each other and went, I ain't happy with that. Like they've been stung before, perhaps. And <laughs> they're like, nah, mate, I ain't, I ain't selling to you. You know, I can see the guy there, he's got two two sandwich bags full of uh, wraps of crack and heroin. And, and I'm like, well, mate, the gear's there, just give me the gear. I've got, I've got the money, you've got the money in it. They start gobbing off at me and telling me to get out of the car, um, get out now, you know. But, uh, I'm like, okay, 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 okay. And then without thinking wow. about it, I, I give them a bit of lip. And uh, <laughs> and then they start getting out of the car and I think we'll be chased by these two yardies with machetes. So I'm on the toes, I'm gone. <laughs> I'm not hanging about for that. I'm gone. Um, uh, and me and, me, me and me mate, the oppo at the time, uh, we, we laid off to the first oh, train into Birmingham, get away from this guy wanted to test yeah. us, he was buying cocaine, and uh, he was like, you come with me, so I followed him down to the toilets in this pub, and he lined up a couple of lines of coke on top of the toilet system, uh, and he went in and snorted one, then he come out and handed me this roll of 20 quid note, and he said, there you go son, get that down, yeah, I was like, oh shit. Because obviously, you know, you're an undercover cop. You can't be taking drugs. You know, it taints the evidence. It's um, it, it, it's just not what you do. It's against the rules. You know, it's po- you're poisoning yourself. Um, so they'd have to do a t- detox procedure on you afterwards, if that's what happened. Um, so I thought, how am I going to do this? And this comes back to that thinking on your feet element. Um, I'm like, my stomach is churning. Honestly, my stomach's churning. All I can smell is cleaning fluids and piss in this toilet and I'm like, oh, oh my, my god, god. what's, uh, what's going to happen to me down this guy was huge anyway um wow. i goes to step into the uh the, the toilet cubicle to, to take the hit and uh the toilet doors open and somebody else comes in and at this this guy panics a bit shuts the door on me and sort of protects me from being seen 
So I just quickly wipe it off the uh, the top of the system, quick blow it off, and then pretend to make a couple of snorting noises. Um, I come back out and I'm shaking like a shitting dog. I am shaking. <laughs> it's the it's the nerves. My hands are going <laughs> and everything. And I'm like, and I hand him back his twenty quid note because that's the etiquette. You know, you can't keep the money. Um, Handing back his 20 quid note, my hands are shaking. I'm like, mate, that's got right up in my eyes. That and I hand it in back. And I was like, Phew. and I get him to wrap up the wrap again because my hands are just shaking like mad. And uh, he's he's like, okay, okay, mate, no problem. He wraps it up, gives it me back, and, and we go to get to walk out. And luckily, my my um, partner who I was working with at the time was waiting around outside um, to come and jump in if anything had gone wrong. But yeah, it's yeah. like, uh, yeah, incidents like that can happen. And you need to be prepared for that. Um, and to be fair, looking back, I probably wasn't as prepared as I should have been. I shouldn't have gone down there and I shouldn't have um, been put in that situation, but I was. And you just have to sometimes adapt and deal with what you, what the cards you dealt. The skills of resilience and overcoming problems in such a fast-paced environment where you've got to think on your feet has got to be one of the biggest skill sets of somebody in that position. And it's something... Is it something you can train for or is it something that's just inside you? You've got that ability, that good street cred to be able to mix with those types of individuals and get yourself out of prickly situations. I think um, most people who are involved in training and, and the world, would, that sort of world would say you can teach anything, you can train anybody to do anything. But I think you have to have a personal mindset, life experience yeah. that yeah. allows you to be trained. If that makes sense, you, if you haven't got that street knowledge, that ability to get on with people, that um, ability to run a couple of um, different lives in, in your mind, um, uh, be that your home life, your work life, your undercover life, all at once, you need that resilience to be able to do that for a start. So you can't train anybody to do anything. Um, you, you know, is um, the training course that you get for the, for the undercover course, you you get put through a series of scenarios, um, buying drugs in different scenarios of different people and different things happen to test your cover stories, to test your resilience, to test yeah. your evidence gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't actually tell you how to do it. They want to see you do it and see what how you react. Um, it's a skill you can learn. <laughs> So you can't, but you can. It's a skill you learn to get better at. The more deployments you do, become more used to um, speaking to people in their environments. And a lot of it is exposure to actually doing it is where you learn your biggest lessons. The same as most things in life. You spent, am I right in saying, five years in that role, travelling across the UK um, doing this work. That must have taken must have taken a bit of toll on family that type of role being away from home for periods of time them not really knowing where you are what you're doing it's uh challenging times yeah it does it does it has an effect on the family the kids were so young they didn't know um uh, the wife at the time she had like i said she she had to build a social circle for herself and look after herself whilst i was away and i don't um underestimate the the pressures that they're under as well uh you know, they've got to carry on and keep keep the family home moving on. I mean, you earn a lot more money when you're working away because you get more overtime, and that kind yep. of helps offset, but yeah. that can only mm. go on for so long, you know. 
Um, so, yeah, they are under lots of pressure, yeah. But even your physical appearance, does that have to change to some extent to be able to fit into these environments? Oh, yeah, it depends on uh, what type of drug you're targeting, really. Um, if I'm targeting um, pills and coke, I'll dress up as a clubber, uh, have me hair cut in a certain way, perhaps. So um, I think one of the examples I give in, the, in my book is that, you know, I've even had to shave Adidas stripes into my eyebrows uh, to sort of blend in to an environment wow. uh, and it's quite funny when you go back to work and you've still got I mean, the inspector gives you that sideways look uh, <laughs> <laughs> i remember one inspector telling me to get a shave and i was like boss i'm on a deployment oh okay and he sort of left me alone after that um because you know in between deployments you go back to your normal work so i could i could be working um a week in a town and they say we don't need you till next until next week so you have to go back and carry on with your shifts and i could be there with a the full growth on you know where, where i've been pretending to be a smacker you're listening to part one of my chat with former detective sergeant matt trot in episode two matt and i discussed the challenges of managing human sources in high-risk environments and his love for public order policing which saw him seriously injured and forced out of the job he loved so much one will come flying down impacted it to me um, and I went flying into some chairs that were to my right. Uh, my spine decided to go left, and I ended up getting prolapsed discs in the base of my spine. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. <laughs>